Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 36 of Yorkshire Gamers Elite Big War Games podcast. And you will be unsurprised to know that this is the second part of the Henry Hyde episode uh, that I talked about at the end of the first part of the Henry Hyde episode. Uh, so more about that very shortly. Uh, very little in the way of housekeeping to do. Uh, this is uh, being released less than a week after the first part of the podcast. I have in between uh, managed to uh, record, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, an episode of the Christmas Brews in the Binyard special, uh, the traditional, as we've done it twice now. And uh, I'm so glad that both Alex Sutheran and Sean Clark were available uh, for the recording. I know a lot of you out there um, have been uh, missing Sean from the airwaves after God's Own Scale sadly um, got put on hold. Let's 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 call it that for now. Let's call it put on hold. Um, so you'll be glad to hear Sean back on the airwaves. And uh, the, the boys were on form. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, the uh, the litigation uh, is flooding in already, even before the episode comes out. So that just takes us back to today's episode. And Henry, if you remember in the end of the first part, we had just finished the big game section. So coming up on this episode, we've got the usual features section with the quiz, War Games Room 101 and uh, Desert Island War Game. And uh, then we move on to the big topic at the end. And I did have a lot of plans uh, for this final topic. Um, but we'd already been going for about four hours at this point. Um, and uh, we only managed to really get a bit of a podcaster loving and talking about Henry's podcast and a few of our thoughts on podcasting in general. And um, there's a lot of stuff that I want to talk to. And if you listen to the last sort of five minutes of the podcast, you'll get an idea of where I'm going with that. Some quite serious stuff. Um, some stuff that's affected me over the years and uh, Henry as well and he is very vocal about uh, you know mental health and uh, physical health uh, for us war gamers and for everyone in general but you know specifically for us war gamers because that's where the uh, our audience is and you know I've I've had some difficult events uh, over recent months uh, so it's important to me as well and I, I didn't want to rush Henry he had to go at seven o'clock which was about 10 minutes after we finished this uh, recording and I didn't think it was right to deal with such weighty subjects uh, in a rushed manner so Henry's going to come back on hopefully I can get that fitted in uh, springtime next year and you may actually get a serious podcast for once. Uh, you never know. Anyway, without further ado, here's second part of interview. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it is the feature section of the Yorkshire Gamer uh, podcast. And uh, the first part, as you all know, is our little quiz. And uh, we always have to, because it always gets me into trouble, this quiz, uh, we have to give that little disclaimer that I, this is how Yorkshire gamer you are, not how good a gamer you are, just how Yorkshire gamer you are. And you could be like Sean Clark, who managed to get a poultry 30%, um, or you could be like my mate Richard Harris, who got 95%. 
there we are a we are a broad church as my friend sean says um so uh these these answers to these henry are either one or the other or a yes or no um but okay. we we may um disappear down a conversation on a couple of them <laughs> as uh as we tend to do okay so are you ready to go yep okay the first question is go big or go home go big go big now, this is going to cause some trouble, I can tell already. Uh, question two, contrast paints, are they great or are they a gimmick? They are a useful tool. You're, you're sitting on the fence there, Henry. What are you doing? Well, are you they, doing? they are they're great in certain circumstances. If, if, you, if what you want to achieve is a speedy uh, application of paint that looks pretty damn good to get stuff onto the table fairly quickly, they're great. The way I'm using it, I had a conversation on Twitter with uh, Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Yeah. About this the other day. And I was saying what I've realized I do with contrast paint is I treat them a bit. If, like if you use an art analogy, it's like doing a sketch. Mm. And so I'll slop on some contrast paints. And sometimes to your amazement, wow, that sketch looks really good. In yeah. fact, it might even look good enough, you know, add a couple of bits like your metallics and whatever and varnish over the top, base it done. And there's other times when I think, oh, it's not a bad start, but actually I want to add some more detail or some more highlight or whatever, in which case out come the Vallejos, the foundries, the other citadels, whatever. So the answer really genuinely is it kind of depends. But as 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 a new thing to add to our toolkit, they're great. I use black undercoat so the crap. I switched from using a black undercoat so yeah. that they would be effective. Uh, there we go. There we go. I like that. Uh, so, first regionally based, uh, regionally based, regionally biased question. Yeah. Um, at least, at least I'm honest. Um, so, choosing paintbrushes, do you have Windsor and Newton or Yorkshire made pro art? <laughs> Both. Both. Oh, yep. but separate. What do you use? The, what do you use the posh ones for? The po the winter obviously kind of detail work. The pro yeah. art are fantastic. You want to get your basic colours on using contrast paints or whatever. The pro art absolutely fantastic. Uh, made in, also, made in Skipton. Is that where they're made? Made in Skipton, over the road from where I used to work. Wow. Of course, what you haven't mentioned is not just Winter and Newton. Is it uh, Rosemary and Co? Yes, beautiful they're, brushes. Yeah, they're they're in a place called Cowling, which is about three or four miles away from Skipton. So they're Yorkshire based as well. In 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 the Yorkshire paintbrush triangle, what the Yorkshire paintbrush triangle? Well, I say that there's only two companies in it, so it's a bit of a flat triangle. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an equilateral triangle, that's for sure. More <laughs> yeah. isosceles, more. Yeah. I was going to say rhododendron, but that's that's a flower, not a shape. <laughs> <laughs> rhombus yeah there we go there we go uh yeah so, so uh, on balance i'm kind of York, yorkshire biased i'd have to say because yeah, uh, rosemary and co i support pro art i support but you know if you want the real class you've yeah. got to... oh. series seven can't be beaten dear me stir me tea with them stir me tea with them. <laughs> <laughs> all these people their eardrums are being burst every time i Laugh out loud here. I mean. uh, question four, uh, yes. more controversy. Uh, 96 figures. Would you consider that an army 
or a unit of pike? It's a battalion. Exactly. Exactly. Glad you said that, Henry. Thank you. At, um, at most, a very small brigade. Yeah. Yeah. It's not an army. Not an no. Army. No way. Uh, right. I can, I can feel the emails coming in already. I can feel them. Uh, question five. Six by four table. Is that a big game or a small game? Oh, now, given the conversation we had earlier, it depends what you put on it. If you put, if, for, for me, Spencer Smith was a skirmish. You know, yeah. me cowboys, whatever. It's a skirmish. Uh, if you're using six mil or, or let alone two mil, that, that could be an enormous game. Yeah, good, good answer. I can tell you're not from Yorkshire because you're doing a lot of sitting on the fence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, question six. Um, would you choose a points-based army or an historical order of battle? Oh, historical order of battle. Get away. Ugh. Excellent. Excellent. It's one of the it's interesting point. We linger there just for a second because one yeah, of the of things course. that I managed to avoid doing with my shot, steel and stone rules was I avoided providing a points system. Oh, you rebel, uh, you. Uh, you rebel, you. Because, <laughs> because I think uh, what I actually did was um, I asked a couple of, gamers i know brenda morrissey and who else was it can't remember uh to look at what they thought would be a balanced army for a couple of particular periods napoleonic and the american war of independence and so i pre i i gave a suggested army mm. lists but with no points attached because my feelings is some of the greatest challenges and greatest enjoyment in our hobby can come from totally unbalanced games yeah, where you have a small force taking on a bigger force that using a point system it would have to be an extremely elaborate and cleverly conceived point system to make it make it possible and not all games are supposed to be fair I yeah. think that's the other thing that what you do is you think about the context of the game but this is why I love campaigns Ken yeah. So that players are prepared to say, do you know what? I might just sacrifice that unit to hold up that enemy division in the past there, you know, which under a normal, you know, Wednesday night club, it's like, oh, no, I don't want to do that because I'm going to get trashed. But in a campaign context, yeah, well, if I do that, that means the rest of my core could circle around and take them in the flank and, you know, so... Points, points based, schmoints based, basically. Exactly. I, I am proud to say that I have never played points based game in my entire. How long is it now? Uh, 40 odd years of wargaming. Right. Um, and when, and only when, somebody produces a piece of papyrus or similar that says <laughs> something along the lines of. And Alexander the Great decided to go speak with Darius prior to the battle. And he yeah. said. You've got too many scythe chariots. That's at least a thousand points. And yeah. Darius says, "Well, you need to take a unit of companion cavalry off, or else, <laughs> or else we're not fighting." Then, then I'll I'll use points. The only context in which I, it has a role to play is, you know, of course, in fantasy gaming, where you're talking about two completely unknown elements. But the the, the thing is, when you look at over the years. You know, Elephant in the Room, Games Workshop, Warhammer, where mm. over the years, depending on which edition of the rules you're talking about, they vary 
how many points a particular unit must be worth because they've adjusted the the values or the capabilities of other units, which then mm. unbalances other units. Basically, you're making point systems. You're making a huge bed of nails for yourself. Yeah, That's one of those things because there's always going to be someone who says, yeah, but uh, in this sort of situation, because they're a very what's a warhammer if they're a very shooty unit uh but you know uh, basically they should be cost more points because they can inflict casualties sooner on my very choppy unit you know so yeah. my choppy unit can't get to that shooter unit and then the rules decide, well, yeah but if you do get to them you're going to hack them to pieces so and it just becomes this never-ending circular argument of what's mm. worth more than something else because there's no real historical context upon which to basis uh, to yeah. base it, you know. Yeah, it leads it leads to that. Um, I'm going to use these troops because they're more value. They're more likely yes. to give me a victory. Whereas most of the war gamers that I game with will go, "Oh, they've got nice hats. Can I use those?" <laughs> 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 regardless yeah. of how good they are. I mean, I've got this unit of Italian spearmen for the Italian wars, and they're yeah. already 50 years out of date when the Italian wars starts. But yeah. they look really, really good. And yeah, actually, yeah. I stick them behind a wall in all the games so that they can't get <laughs> injured in any way, shape or form. Because anyway. there's, there's another thing as well. Again, bless his heart, might be been Andy Callan who mentioned this as well. The reality is, historically, a general had to use what they were given. Yeah. And at any one point, half your units could go down with dysentery. Oh, bloody hell. The guards, the guards, they're all sitting on, you know, on the latrines. They can't come to play today. Oh my <laughs> God. The horse, the, 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 the cavalry's run out of fodder. The horses are half starved. All my beautiful heavy cavalry, or in the French in the Peninsula War, all my heavy cavalry have got saddle sores because we haven't trained the cavalry how to look after their horses properly, for example. Or half that column's been sniped to pieces by partisans. The general has to use what they're given. And there's, there's a case to be made that completely the opposite of point systems. Mm. You should be forced to draw cards from a hat you know, Ooh, and random. you only get a unit if it's a picture card kind of thing. Oh, nice. Like that. Right? Like that. What can you do? So, yeah, he's been lucky. He's drawn six picture cards, so he's got six units. You've only drawn four. You've only got four units. And then we'll right, randomly decide what those units are. <laughs> now, that <laughs> would be as historically correct as anything else. Certainly, point systems are just you know, I... They have their place, I suppose, in contest games or whatever, yeah. depending on the context. But then I'm not a competition game and never have been, never want to be a competition game. So for, for, and I, I, I can see that, oh, here's a big word, in a purely ludological sense, right? Ooh. Ooh. And to do with games design, there is a place for point system, depending on the context in which that game is being played. But in a historical context, they're complete nonsense. Excellent. Excellent. Right, that's going to get us a few emails. I like that one. Uh, question seven. Twelve minutes and we're on question <laughs> Go on then. Go on. Question this seven. is quick fire round, isn't it? Quick fire. Uh, when you're doing your painting, do you use a wet palette or an old bit of MDF to uh, mix your paint? <laughs> 
I use a, a dry palette. Dry I use palette. A, 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 a an artist's ordinary cheap plastic palette or a plate, a, an old oh, yeah. white china plate. Yeah. Um, tiles, I, are quite, I, tiles are quite popular as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a wet palette, which I almost never use. I keep forgetting I've got it. Um, because I've got you so used to just dispensing the quantity I need of paint for the session I'm going to be painting, uh, and so uh, you know a wet pa- wet palette. I suppose if you knew you're going to be doing multiple sessions and you need you'd mixed a specific color and you need to keep that color available over several painting sessions. All right, I can I can see that. Mm. But there's another thing I do. It's called having a notebook where I literally write down, this is how I mix this color kind of thing. I painted <laughs> their epaulets that color. Um, and nowadays, we were talking about paints earlier. Mate, you could get any color you want under the sun <laughs> yeah. in a little tube. So just squeeze a bit of it onto the palette. And if you need more, squeeze a bit more. Exactly. Yeah. Wise advice. Wise advice. Um, oh, I think you've just changed your answer on this one. Undercoat figures, black or white? I used to count undercoat black. I've switched to undercoating white. Sorry. No worries. No worries. I think you might get the next one wrong as well. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you're, you're, you're after a drink, a hot drink. Do you go for Yorkshire tea or dirty mucky coffee? I'm such a southerner. I'm on the fence. <laughs> it depends. I now it wouldn't be Yorkshire tea, darling. It would, would it be not? As, Assam. I'm a fan oh. of Assam tea. It's such a such a southerner, aren't they? Wussy southerner. Yeah. Assam tea, but my beverage of choice is uh, really good strong coffee. coffee I'm a yeah. I'm a Lavazza man, but I also you know I'm Ponzi. You know I float around different. I've started <laughs> buying my own beans and grinding my own beans from different suppliers. You know what can I say? I'm a southerner. Sorry, yeah, I, I I had a bit of a tea a tea lecture on the last podcast with this one because uh, I spoke to to Rohan uh, Saravanamutu, who was born yeah. in Ceylon. Oh wow! So it was like, let me tell you about tea, lad. Oh my god! <laughs> Stand back. Yeah, no, it's it's that definitely. I'm my my favorite coffee is uh, there's a man, an Italian manufacturer called Lavazza, yeah. and I fell in because my, my sister lives in Italy. I yeah. should add that. So oh, when I was in my very early teens, went to visit my sister in Italy for the first time. And the first time I was, and she should never have given it to me at that age, but an espresso coffee made with lavazza at just sheer perfection. And then, you know, discovering more since then. Coffee's in my blood, coffee quite literally, way, mate. Coffee quite all literally. the way. No worries. Uh, we're on to question 10 uh, after a mere 15 minutes. Yeah. And... Uh, this one, this one is war games units. If it's yeah. uh, historically correct, do you like your figures tightly packed or socially distanced? Oh, tightly packed. Tightly I'm a shoulder packed. to shoulder kind of guy. Brilliant. That's what I like to hear. That's oh God, like yeah. Hear. I, I, it, it, it irks me. It irk. There's a good word. It irks, irks me when I see a unit that's supposedly portraying a unit that would have deployed shoulder to shoulder, but the miniatures are like three quarters of an inch or an inch apart it's like what's that that's not because this comes back to oh no because i've decided what i'm going to put in room 101 when we come to it so we'll come back to that come back back to this shoulder to to shoulder mate shoulder Shoulder to to shoulder excellent that's what we like to see 
Um, you have a choice of a two-hour club game or a weekend monster game. Which would you choose? A weekend monster game. Brilliant. Brilliant. Now, we have a question that uh, di- literally, literally divides the country. Um, so I think I know what your answer is going to be for this. Um, and this this comes from Nick Skinner from the Two Fat Lardies. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and yeah. this is avocado. Are they just posh, mushy peas? Wow. Yes. 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 Yeah, I think you're the first person south of Birmingham who's <laughs> really yeah. now. I think because uh, uh, round here, oh yeah, uh, crushed avocado on toast or whatever is all over yeah. the place, and it's just like, I mean, first of all, I've actually got, I'm starting to have ethical objections about avocados. Do you know how much water it takes to grow a single avocado? It's it's, <laughs> it's like twenty liters, right? Wow. And in a world that's worried about climate change and stuff, do you know what? I'll switch to mushy peas or uh, what are they call edamame beans or whatever, which are like oh, soybean type things, good. and oh. and they taste pretty much as good as avocado. I like a I like a nice avocado, but I do think that they are so hugely overrated and overpopularized, mm. uh, and quite often you could use whether mushy peas or some other form of crushed mm. pea condiment in their place. Excellent. Well, there are there are small pockets of avocado use within Yorkshire, around around areas like Harrogate uh, <laughs> and uh, and Ilkley and Otley oh, and, dear, and all these, dear, these dear, posh dear. bits. But but most they're, they're places, well fenced off. Are they well fenced yeah, off? Yeah, they are. We, we keep themselves to themselves. Whereas normally um, it's mushy peas. I don't know if you remember. Do you ever remember the Yorkshire Airlines sketch that Halen Pace did? No, I don't ago. remember that. Oh, no. look it, look it up on YouTube. It is absolutely okay. hilarious because there's there's a bit where the um you you see a a row of seats with people sat there and they've got um some food as you would do on an air, airline, yeah, yeah. and then the air hostess comes down the line and slaps massive amounts of mushy peas on top of everyone, <laughs> and then it goes. And in first class, we have a more refined dinner. So. Same again, but with like a posh dinner, and then the yeah. same lady comes on and slaps this mashed <laughs> on top. Oh, oh dear. dear! Anyway, uh, so the universal question so far, Henry, there's no pressure on you, but 35 episodes in, everyone has answered this the same way. Um, and this is round dice, spherical dice. Are they allowed or banned on your table? Spherical dice. Never seen one. We've not seen that. Oh, I'm introducing you to a new world of hurt. And they would be banned immediately. Excellent. I, 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 I can go, because of Dungeons & Dragons, I can go as far as a few polyhedra. But yeah. as purely spherical dice, get out of here. Not get interested. Out. Brilliant. I love it. Thank you, Henry. You've kept our, our 100% <laughs> record for that. <laughs> so uh, no, no pressure on my next guest. Um, so, um, you're going, you're going down the chip shop for a, for, for a meal. Would you have haddock or cod? Haddock. Haddock. But old school here, uh, question 15, uh, would you, or do you enjoy a good table in a set of rules, like a casualty table where you're cross-referencing stuff or are you more six and your dad? Oh gosh. 
I prefer simplicity. I prefer buckets of dice. Bucketsofdice.com. Yep. Excellent. Yep. Excellent. Uh, question 16, more controversy. Uh, 28 mil is king, yes or no? Oh. It's a big fence you've got there, Henry. False. False. Ooh. 30 mil is king. 30 mil is king. Not 32. 30. 30. 30 mil is Spencer king. Smith's Holger Eriksson. Oh, yeah. See where you're coming from. 30 mil. Krantara, Minden, all those manufacturers. Some people call it 156 or something nowadays yeah. as well, don't they? 30 mil, I think, truly king. Uh, but I think that 28 and uh, 6 mil are worthy princes. Brilliant. That's what we like to hear. So, like, like Joe Root is the current crown prince of uh, Yorkshire. Um, yeah. So, question 17. Unpainted miniatures, are they allowed on the table? Yes or no? Not now. Not Used now. to be, but not now. No. I, if people want to do it in the privacy of their own home, that's up to them. But uh, now I, I, I've passed that partly because of the, uh, yeah, just kind of my own pride in you know. If I'm yeah. going to put on a game, I want it to look pretty, and I no longer there, there were. Yeah, I've I've had my time doing with unpainted miniatures. I now want yeah. painted miniatures on the table. Excellent. That's what we like to hear. Um, question 18. I don't know if you follow football at all, Henry, um, but uh, this is uh, Bradford City or Leeds United. I'm wearing a Bradford City top just in case you needed a, a hint. Brighton. Brighton. Brighton and Hove Albion. Brighton and Hove Do you know, Albion. I, but here's the thing. I don't follow football at all. You I was don't. a rugby guy. Yeah. I was a rugby union player. And um, football... I get semi-interested sometimes when the World Cup comes around. Hmm. Um, here's a confession. I don't know how many of your listeners would confess to Actually, I prefer women's football. Oh, okay. I was so impressed. I've, I've been so impressed with the women's tournaments in recent years. And the lack of hissy fits, the fact that they take a tackle, they get up again, get on with the game. None of this diving and just yeah anyway that's my answer no that's fine that's fine um I, used to I, be leeds united united though i will say because when leeds. i was a lad i was a king goalkeeper ah, and yes. gary sprake of leeds united gary sprake wow we're going that? back there yes i do yeah. i remember gary gordon sprake. banks was actually my top man stoke city of course uh but uh, gary sprake was in there absolutely peter bonetti of chelsea yeah yeah, top uh, goalkeepers, one and all. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, right, um, question nineteen: uh, Yorkshire or the other place over the hill? Um, Yorkshire. Excellent. Excellent. Largely because I've spent almost no time at all at the other place over the hill. Yeah, you're not allowed to say it on this podcast. No, I'm not. So Yorkshire. That's the one word. You can say any swear word you can say, but you say the but L not, word, not it gets, word. It no, gets no. creeped. Out. If I'm booking a holiday, I'll uh, uh, up in that part of the country. It would be Yorkshire every time. Brilliant, brilliant. And final question, Henry. Uh, GW Games Workshop are they the work of the devil? Yes or no? No, no. 
Right, no, we we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Games Workshop. I've just bought. Uh, it's a book called Dice Men, I think it's called by yes, Ian Livingstone, yeah. uh, one of the founders. Sir, I should say, Sir Ian Livingstone, as he now is. This, this chance for you yet, Henry? This chance for you yet? <laughs> um, no, I'm from Essex. Uh, they. Uh, it's a, and it looks like being a fascinating read. It's as much a coffee table book as it is a you know a, a, a history of games works. But it's actually fascinating. And when we think of all the historical wargaming talent that earned their chops working for Games Workshop, you know, mm. think of everyone who loves black powder. Yeah, all those guys worked for Games Workshop, folks. You love Perry Miniatures. They were Games Workshop. <laughs> you know, Rick Priestley in Israel. Games Workshop, sure, you know. So. Warlord Games. They worked for Games Workshop. You know, there's so many people in the historical industry who cut their teeth working for, you know, the elephant in the room, as it were. Um We've got to be grateful to them. I think one of the struggles we have is making the correlation between, you know, how many gamers can we say really started playing Warhammer and some people would say graduated to playing mm. historical games. Mm, I think that's that's not so easy to factor in. And I think that might just be a bit of a red herring, actually. But certainly making people aware of the hobby of wargaming in general of tabletop wargaming in general in the high street meant that it's at least when those of us who love historical gaming have been out there and talked about it, people have at least been able to say something like, oh, do you mean like Warhammer? Yeah. And that at least is a starting point for a conversation. Yeah, so it's brought, yeah, brought it into the public conscience. Yeah, they're not they're not the devil's spawn, uh, but I wish I had their money that's for sure yeah, yeah. So, same here same here well thank you very much for that henry um those 20 questions spark off loads of little mini conversations of about course loads yeah. of little bits um and uh 65 which is very reasonable very all reasonable right thank indeed. you very much thank very you reasonable indeed. That's very decent, so man. that that's high enough high enough to um not be embarrassed and low enough to if anyone says you know, you're not bloody like that Yorkshire gamer lad, are you? Bloody and you go, well, no, actually, I'm only 65%. Or exactly. Not bad for a southerner is how you'd yeah. probably put it. Yeah. And yeah. you ace the avocado question, which for north of Birmingham is a is a rare, rare thing. What yeah. can I say? What can yeah. I say? So um, we move on to the next part of the feature section. And this is uh, our War Games Room 101. And this yeah. is where... Um, we've we've had a, a rant earlier from Henry, which was extremely uh, entertaining, and um, uh, this is this is for the view for the listeners. Uh, George Orwell's Room of Horror that was turned into a TV show, and you're able to put your deepest darkest fear in there, and it's consigned to that room and banished forever. Um, yeah. We've had thirteen entries into the vault so far. So mm. Henry, this is this is your chance. It's and it's a broad church. We're not here to offend anyone, but we all have our little pet hates that sometimes drive us a little bit mad. I might have to squeeze in two. Ooh, ooh, ooh! You can try and persuade me. Go on. <laughs> the first one, mm. unpainted base edges. Giles Allison was talking about unpainted flag ed edges. I'm yeah. with him on that. Yeah. The number of people who do beautiful terrain work on the top of their two mil thick or whatever it is, MDF bases, 
yeah. and leave the edges bare. No, <clears throat> at least paint them green or brown or black or something because there's nothing spoils the look of a beautifully painted more than the edges of those bases just sticking up like lumps out of the table. And the second thing, probably that's just kind of a minor like, because it's like they've gone to all that trouble with the rest of the unit and then they've missed the edge of the base. Can't stand that. Just before we go on to the second one, just before we go on to the second one, um, how would you feel then um, about, I don't know exactly how to word this, but badly painted edges. So um, let's say you've got a lovely, luxurious um, Rassland game mat and your uh, edges to the base is a so luminous green that you need to wear sunglasses playing your opponent. Yeah, that that's that's equally crap. I totally exactly. agree. People need to think about, well, it needs to at least match the basing that I've done on the... Because people will have put tufts and little puddles and little bits of cork bark rubble and all that stuff. And then just a nasty rough cut bit of MDF edge or, as you say, luminous green or something <laughs> ghastly. Make it kind of blend. I mean, I've got a thing about bases that are over thick. Anyway, for the longest time, one of the biggest bugbears I had about a lot of fantasy, Warhammer fantasy game, was the plinth bases of figures. Yeah. It's taken me a long, 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 long time to get over that. And I still have to admit a bit of a twitch. You know, when it comes to my 18th century, I found this wonderful, incredibly thin, like half mil plywood bases that basically means they're pretty much sitting on the tabletop but giving you the advantage of being able to move them around it's the whole basing oh i'll have to come back on the show and talk for a couple of hours about basing that's a whole thing in itself whole well, it thing was, in itself it, it was simon miller's simon miller's choice was oversized uh sub sabo bases yeah. and i have to say it's something that i hadn't really picked up on until simon mentioned it oh and now every time i see it it's like two big red arrows pointing yeah yeah over oversized particularly over thick bases yeah just and but this ties in with what i really want to put into room okay. 101 okay let's go <clears throat> let's go it is the in inverted commas accuracy nerds Ooh. right because i used that word plausible deliberately several times earlier in the show and i've used it all over the place because <laughs> you will get people claiming oh yeah this game's incredibly accurate so why are your figures on five millimeter thick bases then it looks like shit <laughs> right why are your figures spaced two inches apart and they're supposed to be in close order. It looks awful. You know, yeah. accuracy to me, or it, it, you, you have to have the look and feel of the game. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is actually circling right back. This is where often big games win out because they at least bear a passing resemblance to their, as a facsimile of the historical thing yeah. where, you know, you, it's one of those things where, of course, and I, I bet dear Pete Berry, hello, Pete, if you're listening, 
uh, and a good Yorkshireman, of course. Sheffield. He is, yeah, yeah. He'll be listening and jumping up and down because, of course, this is where the micro scales can win out, where you can actually have huge battalions that look like the real thing. Painting them needs a you know a particular kind of challenge, and I think of a Canadian guy who I published several articles by in Battle Games back in the day, Bob Barnetson. I don't know if he's mm. still wargaming at all, but if he listens to this, hello, Bob. Uh, I don't know if you're still in the hobby. If you are, always admired the fact that you said, yeah, well, what I do, a lot of people would say, okay, I'm playing using 28 mil miniatures, uh, one inch equals 10 yards, and so I'll put, you know, 48 figures in that mm, battalion. Yeah. Sod that, I'll have 200 figures in that battalion. Because then, oh my God, that looks much closer to how it would have really been. And one of the things that we often have to encounter as war gamers is our historical war games on the tabletop often more accurately are facsimiles of historical reenactments, right? Because mm, yeah. anyone who's been to reenactments knows that, all right, so this is the Battle of Edge Hill, but there's 50 blokes, right? <laughs> yeah. And most of them are wearing welding gloves, but that's a, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. That's a, my reenactment bugbears, you know. But when it comes to historical, the whole accuracy thing, people who are claiming that what I'm portraying here is more accurate than what you're portraying there. Yeah. And the fact is, if we're honest, all of us are making compromises somewhere down the line. And where does the accuracy stop? Anyway, what is it? The question we need to be asking is actually, what is it about this historical period, about this specific battle? What is it I'm trying to represent? Am I trying to represent the visual spectacle of the battle? In which case, this is, of course, where big games win out. Or, And I, I mean that even where you've got big games with smaller miniatures on smaller tabletops, but you're talking about portraying the the battle in its visual form more accurately but even then do you really want to put there's i can't see any entrails on your tabletop i can't see any horses running around you know neighing with their half a leg blown off do you really want to portray that you're doing modern gaming do you really want to show guys who've just been hit by an ied is that really what how so what do you mean by oh no i don't mean that accurate i mean well i'm i'm doing this bit accurately right so how accurately uh how many gamers actually represent the weather in their war games seriously one reason why i wrote the campaigns book is like you know, here's an opportunity, at least in the strategic setting, where you really can show the effect of weather on your games. That, man, if it's winter, half your guys might freeze to death. Your your tanks aren't going to go. Their tracks freeze up. You know, the running gear gets buggered, whatever. So the fact is, we're all making compromises. And we already used the example earlier where someone's, oh, I think you'll find that, you know, between March and April of 1807, uh, they used a different shade of indigo dye for the French uniforms. Oh, get lost, mate. (laughs) That's because what we're talking about there is, frankly, you know, 
in the nicest possible way, being slightly on the spectrum, mm. where people are more concerned with order and systems and organization in their hobby, in their portrayal of events, than in the actual events themselves. Yes. And I think we all have to be wary of that because it's so easy. It's, you know, even the best of us can stray into that. When you're researching a period in detail and you're starting to paint your armies in detail, you're actually having to make a decision about, oh, crikey, all right, I've, I've got to make some sort of cutoff point. Things look really pretty, you know, for your Italian wars. I, I, they They look really good in that slot of time. So I'm going to kind of paint in accordance with that slot of time mm. to the best of my ability. So, because what you're doing is you're actually creating as accurate an, an impression as you can mm. of warfare of the time, rather than a literally down to the day, oh, it's 11 o'clock, it's February the 3rd, 1472, <laughs> kind of accurate. Oh, yeah, and Bill, Bill Bloggs, who was in that regiment, of archers left behind his breastplate plate that day so i better leave his breastplate off no because no. as you say you're okay yes i am doing pavia with this unit but i'm also doing this other battle and i'm doing this campaign set in this slightly different period i'm not going to sit there and paint another five thousand figures yeah. i'm going to exactly. use the same figures over and over again which is what we all do and it's it doesn't matter whether you're talking big battles, historical battles, or you're talking, you know, what I'm doing at the moment, Dungeons and Dragons. I've I've just painted like 50 civilians, right? Lovely miniatures, bought them off Etsy, great things. And I made a decision at that moment, right, well, B B Jane, the, 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 the shepherdess, is wearing a green dress. Right. I'm not going to. Oh, right. Next time we play. Shit, I need to repaint it because she's going to put on a red dress. <laughs> no, we all make compromises. And the same when it comes to weapon effects and stuff, you could say, well, theoretically, a brown best musket could be fired up to, say, four times a minute by very highly experienced mm. troops with the best possible quality powder with musket balls that were all beautifully cast in perfectly flat, calm conditions on a parade ground. But they're not going to be doing that with that huge French column of grenadiers coming at them through the fog on this day up the top of a Spanish hill in 1808 where the bloke next to him just had his head blown off. So what, so what exactly do you mean by accurate? Right? So if I've got anything to put into room 101, it is the accuracy fanatics, oh, because lovely. what we all need to do is admit that we're just, we're, we're creating an impression, hopefully a convincing and I use that word again, plausible impression of what actually was possible historically. But there's no way we can say that what we're doing is actually accurate. Because as soon as Napoleon wins Waterloo, uh, not accurate. Not accurate anymore. Exactly. Well, that was a that was a lovely and wonderful 
hotly argued um, entry. And uh, of course, the the vault is opening behind me now, and and they are being uh, put in there along with primary school blue rivers and unpainted edged flags and uh, competition games and all the other things that have gone in there over the previous episode. So thank you very much for that, Henry. Very You're welcome. Very good indeed. And. Um, that just leaves us with our final feature, and this is relatively new. Uh, and this is the Desert Island War Game. So you'll be familiar, I would imagine, with the Desert Island Discs program on. Uh, this is still on Radio Four. I think it's Radio Four. Yeah. Um, and uh, very similar to that, the first part is that you get to uh, have a Desert Island War Game, and it can be any game. It can be any number of players, any scale, any period, any size. Uh, what would be your perfect war game wow um i suppose if i'm stuck on a desert island there's going to be an an element of kind of nostalgia memories of home so i'm going to point up at that book on my shelf again the war game by charles grant i'd like and a game that i was lucky enough to actually do at partisan back in oh my god when was it 2000 and six or thereabouts yeah where um i and phil ollie and steve gill and uh john priest who we called ourselves the war gamers staged the battle of molwitz 1741 that featured in charles the late charles grant original book the war game 1971 and we got to play it with the original spencer smith miniatures and the balsawood buildings built by charles grant with a game that was co-organized with charles stewart grant still alive retired brigadier charles stewart grant and sadly the late stuart asquith and being able to restage that game at partisan uh with the original stuff was just one of the magic moments of my wargaming life and if i was able to take that collection and stuff and because it would be quite simple to do because they were contour stepped hills plain green tabletop you know balsa wood buildings that I would say would probably keep me happy for the rest of my time because there were enough units involved that, you know, I could set up all kinds of different games. The canister cones, the howitzer burst circles made from wire and stuff. Plenty of D6s. I think that would help me to see out my days if I was stuck on on the desert island, mate. Fantastic Um, choice. I think that that would have to be it. Brilliant. Um, and uh, second thing, obviously, uh, apart from a, a religious book, you're allowed to take an, a book with you. Um, would it be along the same lines? Um, I could easily take, I could easily take a copy of the War Game. I just, I know the rules pretty much off by heart, uh, <laughs> and I could, they would just fit on a bit of paper. I yeah. could be egotistical and say, "Oh, I take my own two books." Thank you very yeah, much, indeed. Yeah. Largely because by the time you finish writing a book, you've mostly forgotten what you <laughs> you wrote at the beginning. <laughs> Trust me. But no, I the, the book I would take with me is a book by the now incredibly sadly late 
great historian Christopher Duffy. Yeah, and it's called uh, the book would be the military experience in the age of reason, because I think that is a book that for me and many others bridge that gap. You know, we often say that um, history is a different country. Mm. And one of the things that's always fascinated me about reading about military history is, wow, how the hell did those guys just stand there and blaze away shoulder to shoulder and put up with the privations and the discipline and stuff? And probably I I think that's one of the greatest history books I've ever read. Mm. So off the top of my head, that's the one I'm going to choose. The Military History in the Age of... uh, Military Experience in the Age of Reason by Christopher Duffy. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And finally, finally, is... A war games unit. It doesn't have to be one that you own. It can be one from history. It can be one you've seen in a magazine. Not that I'm suggesting you go out and steal it. But <laughs> um, what's the one war game unit that maybe you have the best memories of that you would love to take? Oh, dead easy. It's my own Regiment von Eintopf, yeah. uh, the first musketeers of Prunkland's army uh, with its attached uh, company of grenadiers. Uh, Absolutely. And of course, it's very famous Colonel Oberst von Arschloch, uh, which caused quite a stir Uh, many, many years ago when it was 86 or whatever it is, when I had my first article published in Miniature War Games featuring the Wars of the Faltinian Succession and Regiment von Eintopf was there. And my all my unit commanders have got fairly fruity names of one kind or another, (laughs) but in German. Yeah. And uh, Duncan didn't spot this until it had already been published and he started to get letters from German readers of miniature war games. Oh, and wow. he said, he sent me when he sent me, cause he did back in those days, he actually did send out checks for your articles. Mm. Uh, I, he seemed to have lapsed in that in later years and some people would have to unpaid for their efforts, but he he'd sent me a check for my article and he said, Oh yeah, would, would love to have more articles from me, Henry, but, but please warn me in advance uh, or change the, the names of your units because it wasn't only von Arschloch there. I also, and apologies to any German, no, no, he lets words go through. There, there was a Hussar unit called von Vielficken Hussars, yeah. uh, which, in case you don't speak German, means the fuck a lot Hussars. <laughs> Oh, and uh, which is what hussars do of course uh, yeah but anyway the unit i would do the war game unit i would take with me then would be regiment von eintopf my glorious huge unit of spencer smith i think that unit's got something like 60 figures in it yeah. uh including all the supernumerary officers and everything uh that would kind of kind of sums up my imaginations imagination and and that will keep me happy for the rest of the time that's fantastic. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, lovely feature section. Uh, got loads of information there from Henry. That was really, really nice. Uh, so we'll have another short break for the audience now, and we shall be back shortly. Okay. Um, by now, I would imagine that um, your children have got a year older. And... <laughs> Uh, maybe maybe your dog needs feeding. Um, I, I would go and check because it's only it was three and a half hours, mate. So uh, far, it's it's. I, I said this on one of the previous podcasts that when it's like when the pole vaulter runs up and doesn't plant the pole and go over the top. We're kind of 
going towards the record, but we're not actually going for it. Oh, dear, I think that would be a good that would be a good charity thing, wouldn't it? A, it a, would a charity podcast for the longest <laughs> ever war games related podcast. Oh. Uh, I get, get some money for charity, but there we go. Um, so in this final final section, um, we kind of have a big topic, or we, we talk about various things, uh, and. As we said at the start, um, Henry's got such a massive catalogue of stuff that he's done and things he's been involved in um, that it's it's quite hard to try and break that down into a, a manageable session. Um, so uh, what I decided to do was uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about an article that Henry did recently. Um, and it was quite a, it was a, a really good article, if you don't mind me saying. And it, it certainly... Um, had me thinking a lot about various things. And um, it wasn't easy in parts to read, but I think maybe we need to challenge certain things um, to maybe confront those things. Um, and, and, you know, if you're up for it, Henry, we'll talk about various yeah, things yeah. that have happened to you. Um, because I think that that can bring hope to other people out there who are going through similar things. I've just made a very few brief notes, more than I would normally, less than I would normally do. And, I, mm. you know, I think the last uh, three sections have shown that we're not going to run out of things to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we will be all right. Um, so the first thing I thought we would do, um, especially for, for our, our friends on the internet who like podcasters talking to podcasters, is I thought we'd have a little bit of a podcast loving to start yeah. with. Um, so when when did you first become involved in in podcasting? Obviously, it's been a while you've been doing it. So yeah, well, you... it was Neil Shuck, wasn't it? Um, Neil Shuck and his Meeples and Miniatures show, uh, which is now God. We have to really turn the clocks back, don't we? I was still running Battle Games magazine at the time, yeah, uh, and still owned Battle Games magazine. Um, so it would have been in, oh, crikey, I don't know, 2008, something like that. I, and I remember what it was, was that Neil asked to place an ad in the magazine for Meeples oh, and Miniatures. Right. Okay. And I was like, oh, what, what's that? He said, oh, it's a podcast. And I was like, like everyone is like, a what? Oh, a pod, what's a podcast? Oh, well, it's it's this. It's like a radio show, but it's not live, and you're kind of talking and record it, and you put it out and through whatever. And of course, podcasting back then, to his enormous, it was in his its yeah. infancy. Neil was a real kind of broke the ground there for. So I said, "Oh, yes, yeah, sure, okay." If you put an ad in there for you, happy to mm. you know help you get this yeah. thing off the ground and uh i think i was even helped him he asked me to help him design his first meeples and miniatures logo or something back then and it was like yeah okay i'll do that happy to help out and then it became oh well would you like because he was doing it all kind of solo at the time i think he said oh well would you like to come on the show and I said, oh, yeah, okay, how, how do you do that? And so uh, I think, because again, Skype was in its early days back then, and we did it all mm. over Skype. And what he realised was he'd found someone who can talk. <laughs> <laughs> and I had huge admiration for Neil, because what I didn't, because obviously we corresponded via email and stuff. 
what I didn't realize was he had a speech impediment, mm. you know, and doing the podcasting was one way that helped him build confidence and overcome the speech impediment. Yeah. Because also he, because you can, you record something and then you can edit it. He was, he was a, a rigorous editor because it meant he could cut out a lot of the ums and ahs and the stammers and this kind of stuff. And so it, for him, it was this extraordinary process that enabled in his head, enabled him to sound normal, you know, yeah. coherent. And I had, you know, huge admiration for him. It's like, wow, that's an amazing thing he's doing. How brave is that? Quite extraordinary. But at the same time, he and I just kind of clicked. You know, he and I, we came from very different wargaming backgrounds. He did a lot more kind of board games, uh, games in a box, fantasy gaming, card games, that kind of stuff. And I, of course, Mr. Boring Spencer Smith, that everyone, oh, God, not bloody Spencer Smith again. But, yeah, I, 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 I've got a sense of humor enough about myself that I know that a lot of people, oh, Jesus, not Henry, bloody Spencer Smith again. <laughs> But what we found was we what we had in common was our love of the hobby in general. And so that's how it started. I went on a Meeples and Miniatures show, and the, the thing that blew us both away, that show, that first show, got an enormous response. Mm. We were Neil was rocked. You know, his his listening numbers kind of rocketed up. And I was like, wow, really? And mm. it was just, I think, that combination of me and him. And the people just kind of realizing it was a bit like listening to a couple of blokes having a conversation down the pub or something like that, you know. Yeah. Chewing the cut about the hobby. And because our interests were so diverse, it meant we covered a huge amount of ground. And mm. obviously, I was able to bring in the whole experience of what it's actually like to run a War Games magazine, which was enlightening for a lot of people, mm. a lot of people suddenly realizing, oh, it's quite hard then, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> and bloody scary and terrifying and, you know, all that. Yeah. And so it kind of gave people an introduction behind the scenes of the hobby that they'd not really kind of had before. Because also from my perspective, you know, Neil was getting guests on his show and I was get, interviewing people from the magazine and obviously talking to people to get into advertise and stuff. And so people were getting an insight into, wow, these people who run the hobby, they're not making loads of money. They're not getting rich doing this. A lot of them are like one bloke in a shed kind of enterprises. And it just seemed to strike a chord and, and also... You know, as you could, it it was probably the longest show he'd re recorded to date <laughs> at that point, and it became well. You know, this worked. Why don't we try doing a thing together? And obviously, he was busy because you know it wasn't his day job, and mm. running the magazine and doing my graphic design business was my day job. But we said, well, why don't we get together from time to time, and just let it go? You know, yeah. no holds barred. Okay, let's do that. What should we call it? Uh, and I came up with these two mad characters, you know, the colonel and the major. <laughs> ah, I say major. What's going on? And uh, it'd be, so, oh, what were the, you know, all oh, right, this couple of old officers, you know, out in the Punjab, having a gin and tonic on the veranda. View from the veranda. Let's call it yeah. view from the veranda. That's kind of how it went. <laughs> and it stuck, you know. And so we did, by the end of it, I think we'd done, 
12 or 13 of these. It wasn't actually a huge number. It's a bit like if you love Faulty Towers or a TV program like that, you think, oh, God, there must have been loads of them. Actually, no, there wasn't. There was only like one or two seasons or whatever it was. But we did these kind of, and it, for whatever reason, people really latched onto them. So that's how the podcasting started. And of course, Neil, the Meeples and Miniatures thing, uh, Neil did loads on his own, and then he occasionally invited his mate, uh, the sadly late, yeah. lovely Mike Hobbs mm. on. And that really became a thing. And of course, you know, with someone else to talk to, the length of Meeples and Miniatures podcast grew. So they were all average, kind of probably a couple of mm. hours a time for sure. Mike Whitaker uh, got involved as well mm. to a certain extent. Um, because uh, Mike's uh, people don't know Mike Whitaker, he's at the Peterborough Club, I think it is, isn't he? Mike Whitaker. Um, and so that kind of went off and had a life on its own. But that's how I got started in podcasting, is bless his heart, thanks to thanks to Neil. Mm. And then it was, um, you know, the, the the string of calamitous events that I went through where, uh, you know, running. Uh, Battle Games magazine on my own with no money behind me, no backing, no security, mm. no nothing. N literally, nearly bankrupt me by the end of 2011, and I, I can remember that. Oh my god, that day where I realised I, I had to send an email out to all the subscribers saying, "Look, I'm, I'm really, really sorry about this, but the, I've got to say, you know, I've hung on by my fingernails for as long as I can. The writing is on the wall." Yeah, and I may, I may go bankrupt tomorrow. I may have to close the magazine down. I, I and I, you know, I just was honest about it. And I kind of put my tin hat on and dived into my bunker, thinking, "Oh my God, this is I'm going to be torn to shreds. People are going to hate mm. me forever for it." The response was completely the opposite. I was blown away. The sympathy I got. Oh my God, Henry, that must be so awful for you. Can we help? What can we do to help? And, you know, there were certain people who literally wanted to make donations, you know, to help me wow. pay the mortgage kind of thing. And I said, well, that's really, you know, that's really lovely of you and it might help today, but, you know, I, I wouldn't help me keep it going as a going enterprise. And the word went out in the hobby and it was, bless his heart, uh, uh, it, it was actually, you know, um, Andrew, who was the editor of Miniature War Games at the time, who mentioned to his boss, a guy called Trevor Ridley, uh, who by then owned Miniature War Games, said, oh, did you, you might be interested to know that this magazine's kind of in trouble. Yeah. And uh, uh, Trevor said to me, oh, you know, uh, can I, I'd like to make you an offer to buy the magazine. And at the same time, I got offers, bless their hearts, to do regular columns for jasper wss magazine mm -hmm. and oh god i've forgotten this i've gone totally bank here uh war games Illustrated. dan at war games Illustrated. Um, yeah but all they could offer was a regular column slot they whereas yeah. what happened was trevor ridley said i'll tell you what i'll buy the magazine off you and uh andrew bless his heart had said to trevor oh you know battle games kind of equals henry you take Henry out of the equation, you're not going to get battle games. So Trevor said, oh, all right, well, we'll keep you on as editor and designer of the magazine. So basically carry on doing what you're doing, but we now mm. own the magazine. Looking back, he paid me a paltry sum to buy the magazine off me. I was so stupid and naive. But it was, you know, beggars can't be choosers. 
So they bought the magazine, but kept me on as editor designer. So that was 2011. And then what happened was 2013, he said, oh, we really like what you've been doing with Battle Games. We're thinking of revamping miniature war games for its 100th uh, whatever edition or <laughs> yeah. special edition. Yeah. Would you come up with a redesign of the magazine? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. And I came up with this redesign. And he said, oh, we really love what you've done here. More than that, we really love what you're doing with Battle Games. What we actually want to do, we've decided, is merge the two magazines, sack Andrew, bless his heart, and keep you on as the editor-designer of this new combined magazine. Yeah. Well, that didn't exactly make me feel like a million dollars on the one hand, but I was mm. desperate. to say, oh, my God. Okay, I'll, I'll take the job. And I felt, I felt crap for Andrew, to be honest, but that's business. And Trevor Ridley was certainly ruthless businessman. So that was 2013. And then come... 2015, he then sold it from under my nose to Warner's big printing yeah. magazine company in um, Lincolnshire, born in Lincolnshire. And uh, the, the, it, it literally, it's like I was driving out. I've been to see Arthur Harmon mm. uh, up in London to talk to him about an article. And I was in the car on the way back. My phone rang and oh, oh hi, Henry. Trevor, can you talk? Oh, I pulled over. Oh, Henry, hi. Um, Yeah, you no longer work for me. And I was what have you just <laughs> sacked me oh no no, no no i've sold the magazine to warners mm. have you yeah yeah uh yeah you won't be hearing from me anymore your boss is this new, uh, bloke called rob who works at warners uh so give him a call and that was it i was like <laughs> you fucking what Right? <laughs> the world of magazines, people, is ruthless. Trust me. So I rang up this bloke, Rob, at uh, Warner's and said, oh, I gather I now work for you. He said, oh, oh yeah, Henry. Yes, yeah, so, should have had more warning. It was all done in a hurry. Sorry about that. Yeah, you were. Just carry on doing what you're doing. Uh, we'll give you a little pay rise, 10% pay rise, which is like 10% of bugger all, really. But yeah, give you a bit of a pay rise as an incentive. Just literally, because I have no clue. I I do motorbike magazines and stuff. I've got mm. no clue what this thing is. What's wargaming? <laughs> we ought to get together and have lunch, and you can explain it to me. But so literally, you just carry on doing what you're doing, editing, designing, whatever. And that's how it was for months. And then kind of end of 2015, he decided, he, uh, right, okay, I, I I can't keep up with this. So he handed over the management of the magazine to this I'm not going to name any names. This other person yeah. at Warner's who was just a numbers person, didn't give a shit, just wanted to see the numbers going up, didn't care about any of my experience in the whole, but he didn't care about the readers, frankly. Just wanted to see the numbers. And, and so, oh, right, okay, Henry, so now you're, you, we, we're no longer going to allow you to design the magazine. Uh, we're going to take that in-house. That was half my income. Wow. Right, wham, and oh yeah. By the way, uh, later in 2016, oh yeah, we decided we're going to put an insert of uh, however 16 pages of fantasy and sci-fi stuff in the middle of the magazine, extra. But you're not going to be the editor of that. You're not going to have any say in what goes on in that. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, this going to be this other bloke who we've just recruited from wherever. Uh, and he's going to be in charge of that. You're not going to have any say. Oh, and we want more articles about this kind of stuff, less about that, and we don't want you to be doing this, want you to be doing that. Well, I was tearing my hair out, mm. and it was so 
end of 20, getting towards the end of 2016, September 2016, I, I, that's enough. And I handed in my resignation. Mm. said, that's it. I'm done. And I planned to set up what was then called Gladius Publications and do my own self-published stuff. Then my mum died. <laughs> oh, no. That was November 2016. So, oh, you know, bless your heart, mum, darling, miss you loads. Mm. Shit timing, mum. Yeah. Just blew my world apart because she'd, unbeknown to me, she'd appointed me executor of her will. And mm. I've got step family. And let's just say the next 18 months were very, very ugly. Not mm. a time of my life that I ever want to relive. And my income was shot to pieces. You know, I, I could hardly work. Basically, I used up all my savings to stay afloat and dipped into my pensions and all the rest. Of it. it was, you know, financially suicidal. Um, and emerged from it just about thinking, basically, what can I do now? And uh, this thing called Patreon had just kind of got going. Mm. And uh, someone I know very well in the self-publishing world, uh, a lovely woman called Joanna Penn, had just started using Patreon to do a podcast of her own mm. and was being pretty successful at it. I mean, she was in a kind of a broader market than I was. But it seemed that Patreon was a good way of reaching people if you had a niche market who knew who you were. Yeah. No good start. If people were going, who the fuck are you? You know, it's like you wouldn't stand a chance. But if you already had a tribe, and this is the one th thing I'm, I'm still incredibly grateful for, the people who first signed up to Battle Games magazine back in 2006, a lot of those same people had stuck with me through thick and thin. Bless your hearts if you're listening. You know, you know who you are. I will be eternally grateful because when I said, oh, might have a go at this Patreon thing, they immediately said, yeah, we'll join in. Mm. And within like days of me launching my thing on Patreon, where I was basically saying, oh, I don't quite know what I'm going to do. I might do a bit of this, a bit of that. Wham. I had my first 100, 150 followers immediately. Wow. Right. And it went from being, it might bring in a little bit to, oh, my God, you know, this is it's not enough to pay all the bills, but it's a serious chunk of income. So what I quickly realized, because asking people, well, what do you, we remember view from the veranda, Henry, you know, and the meeples <laughs> and miniatures stuff. And so podcasting. So it became a bit of a no brainer. Oh, OK, I'll launch my own podcast. And that's how Battle Chat started, you know, then because everything I do is, you know, battle games, this, battle games, that. Yeah. What should I call a podcast? Oh, bat battle, battle, battle chat. Why not battle yeah. chat? And now, as you say, I'm soon going to be episode 100. And that's kind of the story. And the Patreon mm. thing, it, it's mad, really, because I've realized there's a limit. It, I don't think it's ever going to pay the bills completely. It's, it, you know, you get envious because there's lots of people who are like um, in, involved in the music world or the video mm. world or the, the games world who are making fortunes off Patreon. You know, people who are making some people, you know, quite a lot of big names making tens of thousands, some people wow. hundreds of thousands a month off Patreon. But this is where we have to put our tiny bit of the hobby into perspective. Yes, right? uh, we are a tiny, tiny little Tiny, bit. tiny. But, you know, it helps pay the bills. I'm incredibly grateful. And the people who 
have stuck with me since day one seem to still be the people who are sticking with me through thick and thin to the patron. Sometimes their pledges fluctuate. And it's one of those weird things because it's, it's all done in dollars. So international exchange rates, as you know, can fluctuate madly. So you can have the same number of people giving you the same amount each month. But what you actually get as as the Patreon guy at the end of each month can vary by, you know, it has varied by hundreds of pounds a month when big, things have jump. been really yeah. squiffy between the pound and the dollar. Mm. But it's just the way it is, you know. Yeah. But there you go. So that's that's how the podcasting got going. How important you you, you mentioned it there, there, but how important was having that fan base? I use that word loosely. Um, yeah, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. to get started um... oh massively massively I couldn't have done it without it mm. if I'd just been Joe Schmo hey I'm going to do a patron you know okay now I've got something like three and a half thousand followers on Twitter at the time I think I had like two and a half thousand or something mm. um, but back then not many people knew about Patreon and you don't know how many Twitter followers are the because people hide behind handles quite often. You know they've got their own online moniker and stuff. So it's like, oh, I've no idea. So it's kind of a, a leap of faith. But what I now see is those names. I look at the list of my patrons now and compare it with the list of people who were were charter subscribers of Battle Games. Like, mm. oh, hello, hello, yeah. hello, hello, mm. because. I'd established a track record that, and you know, I, this is something I do take pride in, Ken, that if I do something, I want to do it to the best of my ability. So if I'm producing a magazine, I wanted it to be the best magazine I could make it. Mm. If I'm doing a podcast, I want it to be the highest quality podcast, you know, edited nicely and all the rest of it out quickly and all that kind of stuff. And with a different, and this is something you're probably encountering as well as, and Alex is with the storm of mm. steel and so forth is having a distinct voice. How, how do you give yourself a distinct voice when there's, there's so many people out there now doing YouTube channels and podcasting mm. all the rest of it. The answer is of course, well, just be yourself. And if you try and second guess what it is that your punters want to hear, you'll second guess yourself out of a job because at the end of the day, they've bought into you. They've bought yeah. into your personality. They're interested in the stuff that you want to find out. They're interested mm. in the people that you want to interview. You know, that by by investing in you, they get to hear about all this other stuff. And I'm lucky because I've run the magazines. It's given me access to people I, you know, I couldn't have dreamed. Okay, Mark Urban's a war gamer, but he's also the diplomatic editor of Newsnight on the BBC, you know. Yeah. Um, he has to be yeah, he has to be very careful yeah. on social media because he gets nutters sending him threats and stuff, yeah. you know. This is a I, I was like you know, and he made light of it, you know, when I interviewed him, he said, oh, no, it's a real pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to have done it. It's like, wow, you know, it's so lovely. I've, I've, I, you know, I'm not going to name too many names. People just go and look at the list of people I have managed to interview on my podcast. It's like, wow, I've admired these people 
for mm. years. And here they are chatting with me on my podcast as an equal. And I, th I, I remember talking a long time ago, I think uh, probably on View from the Veranda, about imposter syndrome, right? Yes. Yes. And it's one of those things that when you get into this kind of world, you can very easily be overwhelmed by, oh, it's just little me. Who am I? Yeah. But on the other hand, it's like, well, hang on a minute, Henry. You're 61 years old. You've been through a lot in life. Uh, you've run two magazines. You were a magazine editor for 10 years. You've been a professional graphic designer for 30 years. You've been in business one way or another a long time. Of course, people are going to treat you with respect. You know, but sometimes you can lose that and you, yeah. uh, you're venturing out into a field that you feel a bit unsteady about, a bit nervous in. You go, oh, it's only me. It's only little yeah. me. But that's, that's also where, you know, because of what I've been through in the last couple of years, where the psychology comes in as well. So yeah. there you go. That, that's yeah. the podcasting shtick. Yeah. I think it's, um, I think it's, I, I've seen a number of podcasts come and go after maybe two or three episodes sometimes mm. um and for me you kind of have to have as you say that style or that content that is you yeah. um and hope that people enjoy what you do um or yeah. listening to be offended by you which is <laughs> <laughs> It's you. You've made uh, me talk uh, dirty today, Ken. Uh, I am sorry. I've I've lowered you to my level, mate. I'm a nice you boy. To my level. Really. <laughs> so, how do you, how do you, uh, go about choosing your guests for your podcast? Oh, it's utterly random. It's like because the thing that people don't see. I mean, I often have people say, "Oh, you should invite so and so on the podcast." Yeah. Trust me, I've tried. You know, yeah. it's literally a numbers game. You send out 10 invitations. You get lucky, you get two people who say, oh, yeah, I'd love to. And one of them will say, oh, yeah, I can come on next week. The other one said, yeah, uh, February, you're right by you. Say, oh, crap. You know, it's, yeah. it's hard. It is hard finding guests because you also, we're in a hobby that's often, uh, you know, the, pe the people in it are often introverts. Yeah. They're, there are yeah, people with true, dealing with their true. own imposter syndrome. Think, oh God, mm. why would anyone want to listen to me? <laughs> oh no, I don't want to. I don't want to be on a public podcast. You can talk yeah. to me at a show if I'm putting on again. Oh, but no, go go on the air. It's this thing. It's almost like being on the radio or the telly in the old days. Oh, going. Even though you look, it doesn't go out live. You said if there's anything you don't like, I can cut it out. You know, and yeah. I, I might. This is one of those things. I see it's part of my job is to make my guest sound good. And oh, that okay. might involve going in and editing out coughs and splutters and expletives if necessary or whatever. Or it's just making them, putting them at ease, making mm. them feel comfortable that, you know, I'm not going to bite your head off. I'm not going to deliberately ask you any embarrassing questions. You know, that what would be the point of that? The, you know, I'm not, I'm not a TV journalist. And You're that's why I actually to get a gotcha. Exactly. Podcasting is actually strangely much more akin to being a magazine journalist where you're you're creating a mood piece. It's a conversation. Mm. I think of myself like you might do, like a Michael Parkinson or something like that, where I want to encourage the guests to feel comfortable enough to talk about themselves. If they happen to along the way reveal something about themselves that makes the listener goes, oh, I didn't know that in a good way. 
though. I don't want them to. Oh God, I didn't know that. You know, there's a difference there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Too much information, kind of thing. No, if I can encourage my guests to relax and talk freely about stuff, like in the show with Mark Urban the other day, I mean, he, I was really kind of honoured in a way. He really seemed to open up about his experience as a journalist in dangerous places, you know, going to war zones and, you know, the kind of impact that can have on you psychologically and stuff. He didn't have to talk about that. But I thought that actually, wow, I've I've actually never heard him talk about that anywhere yeah. else before. So that was both fascinating for me, and and if it, and this was the kind of the guy. Who, if I thought that was fascinating and moving, but also appropriate in the context, I'll let that go through. If yeah. I think, oh, that's fascinating, but oh, I'm not sure that's appropriate, kind of thing. I'll cut it out. Yeah. You know, um, so I think it's a, 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 a being a podcast is a position of responsibility because mm. also having done my other podcast uh, inside your head about the psychology stuff as well. Again, I was, I was definitely interviewing people there about stuff that goes much deeper mm. um, because of my own experience. You know, I, I, on a, thirst for knowledge a quest for knowledge about my own experience and trying to understand mm. that and um so but then the people who come to listen to a podcast like that are expecting to hear something a bit more yeah ooh, slightly uncomfortable maybe and do you find do, yeah do you i find when i'm i'm doing the podcast that that first section it's about the person I'm talking to, yeah. and it, that I've I've had a few guests who have been um, quite um, I'm not going to mention names uh, monosyllabic. monosyllabic. Thank you, Henry. You can talk. <laughs> I, 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 I'm an editor, <laughs> mate. I'm an editor. Uh, I'm, an, I'm an abattoir at this. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm the, an editor. Um, you're an abattoir. There we yeah, go. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, to to get them to relax in that part, yeah, it then opens up. And then, by the time you get to the big topic, we're you know we're we're just chatting, as you said, like two yeah. mates in a pub, and that's the that's the perfect work level to pitch it at for me. Yeah. Um, and I think you have space and time within a podcast to explore various things. Absolutely. I mean, this is why I always open my podcast with the really simple question: Where are you? Tell people your name, where are you from? Tell us a bit about your early life, where you grew up, how you got into the hobby. And once people are talking about that stuff that is, you know, they're intimately familiar with, they relax. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, obviously, the for, I've settled on a format for my show that um, I've, I've reduced the length of the shows, partly based on the feedback from my own patrons, because you know, I'm I, like today, you know, with someone with whom it's easy, I'm quite happy to rabbit for two, three, getting on for four, four hours five, or whatever it is. Six. Um, <laughs> because, um, and that's okay because that's me, you know, yeah. And you know, your audience are happy to listen to longer format podcasts, whereas a lot of my 
guys have said to me, oh, yeah. I'll be honest, I struggle to listen to something that's as long as even two hours sometimes. They're busy people, whatever. And so I've settled on round about 90 minutes to two hours as the regular thing, once yeah. in a blue moon, like when I do my own Q&A sessions. Mm. You know, they, that's a, that's a <laughs> solo three and a half hour rant wow. a lot of the time, you know. Wow. And that is a challenge, but it's like, well, you've asked for it, guys, right? You, yeah, if yeah. you don't want me to answer all these questions, don't ask them, you know. And you know what I'm like? If I get a hot button, I will. Blah, 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 blah. Right? And I, I admit it. My, and, it's, and it's a strength, but it's also a fault. You yeah. know, it's in psychological terms, it's called oversharing, you know. And it's one of those signs that, ooh, perhaps I'm not completely as fixed as I would like to be, is that you ask me a simple question, I can can talk for three hours nonstop. There, there's nothing wrong with that. It's perfect for a podcast. Perfect but there you go. So that's that's kind of where it is at. Yeah, I, I, I tend to split anything more than two hours into two sections uh, yeah. and just put them out one after another in that way. I think people enjoy having something lengthy if they're going to sit down to paint, yeah. which is the most of the feedback I have. It says, oh, I'll put this on when I'm painting. Or yeah. like we all, wargamers can, potter is a yes. good verb for what wargamers do yes. in a room because yeah. we're actually doing nothing. We're moving books exactly. around, we're moving figures around. And you've got a couple of people talking in the background about the hobby. Yeah. Makes it and fun. let's face it, Christmas is coming. People are taking the Christmas break now. Let it out as a four-hour special. So people oh. are going to have more time at home. They'll be eating their mince pies and drinking their <laughs> glass of sherry in the background, mate. Oh, dear. They yeah. can always hit pause. This is the thing that always gets me is like when people have complained to me. Oh, okay. Have you heard of the pause button? You know, come back and finish it later. Whatever. Brilliant. Because um, you were asking me about that article I wrote. Yeah, I was, I was, but we started with podcasts and. All right, okay. We, we started. We, Go on then. We, we ended talking again. All right, you just want to pick my brains about how to how to improve the quality of your bloody podcast, don't you, King? Of course, of course, mate. <laughs> Give free consultancy. That's the only reason. I'm That's here. right. And so far, your bill is four hundred quid, mate. I reckon at this rate. Excellent. Is that four hundred Yorkshire pounds or? 400... <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, 400 um, Yorkshire pounds, I should say yes, because it's probably about a 1,000 quid down south, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, exactly. You would claim that Yorkshire pounds are worth more. Oh, try buying a drink in London. My word. Oh, mate, don't tell me. It's oh, easy, easy to buy in a house. Easy yes. to buy in a house. Um, your podcast seemed to have um, increased in frequency recently. Have you kind of got a second wind for it? Well, it's partly, you know, but this relates to, you know, my what I've been through in the last two or three years mate and it's like it's also a feeling of wanting to give people value for money yeah you know that bless their hearts some of these people you know give me x amount of dollars a month and i i i feel a deep sense of responsibility and obligation towards my patrons because and that's one of the things about that particular relationship with patrons it is it's like you know Patrons used to exist. You think mm. of the 18th century composers or artists or whatever, where they had patrons who would say, I want you to paint my grand yes, house. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, and, and I'm going to pay you to paint my ground house and, uh, or I want you to compose me a symphony and, you know, I'm paying you to, and these people are paying me to produce content in the same way as when I ran a magazine, people were paying for the mm. magazine. So I feel a sense of professional obligation. There's no other way of putting it that if I, if I possibly can, I, I'm settling on thinking, you know, I'd like to be able to regular as clockwork produce two shows a month mm. as a minimum. Mm. And if I'm able to find the time to do some extra, you know, blog posting or a little video or whatever extra mm. alongside that, that's, that's what I would feel is a comfortable return on their investment. I think, mm. you know, let's be blunt about it. And that if I'm producing a lot less than that, I would, you know, if I was one of my patrons, I'd go, oh, bloody hell, what's happened to Henry? You know, hang on a minute. Why am I, yeah. why am I giving him this money every month and not seeing anything for it? And it's, it's business, you know, I'm, I'm compl and I'm not phased by that. I think that's perfectly fair that if I'm mm. a, a, someone's patron, if I can, you know, but the other thing is that's weird because obviously people come and go on patrons. Patreon. Mm. And I've seen some some of my patrons sadly have had to reduce their pledge mm. each month or even disappear completely. Some of them seem to have gone forever. Some of them, sadly, because they're not spring chickens, might have literally gone forever. Yeah. This is the reality. Some of them come back. Some of them mm. come back and increase their pledge. Wow, lovely. But it's the world's a complicated place. And people adjust their hobby spending. They adjust what they're, you know, they look at their bills at the moment. God, I know my 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 other half, Anne and I, were looking at our, we've, we've just not long signed up with, I think it's Octopus Energy, you know. We looked at our energy bill uh, anticipated for the coming year. Electricity and gas combined, something like 4,000 quid. Wow. For the next 12 months. Mad. And the stark realisation is we're not alone. Everybody at the moment, thanks to Putin, everybody's going through. Ha, those of hands up everyone who didn't realise how much stuff the Ukraine produced before Russia invaded in yeah. terms of, you know, oil and gas and coal and fruit and vegetables and wheat and suddenly you know our energy bills have gone through the roof our shopping you know food bills have gone through the roof this is the stark reality so as a podcaster on patreon i have to just you know i can't blame anyone if they say to me because they you know if people leave they're asked they're given a little questionnaire you know my financial circumstances have changed yeah, I, I, I can't argue with that. Yeah. You know, occasionally, and it is, thank goodness, only occasionally, someone will tick the boxes. Is oh, I, I didn't get as much as I expected from Henry. Mm. You know, oops, sorry about that. But, but this is the other thing. There are other people on Patreon out there who crank out enormous amounts of content. 
And that's one of the other things you can go through is like, oh, my God, oh, my God, perhaps I should be doing four podcasts a month or eight podcasts a month or three podcasts and two videos and six blog posts. You know, oh, and you can get yourself in a complete panic. But mm. what, you know, the brutal reality is, would doing that extra content actually bring in more income? Would it bring in more mm. patrons? It's a million dollar question, right? And the fact is, you might only have the same number of com uh, of patrons, because I know this has happened in the past. I've had patrons say to me, even at this current level of output, oh, God, I, ca I can't keep up with all your output, Henry. <laughs> really? And there's someone just recently has messaged me, oh, yeah, I've just finished listening to episodes 91, 92, 93, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, because I've I've not I've ha and I've had to do a catch up binge because a lot of the the patrons I have are people who have busy lives. They some of them have you know important jobs, don't have many hours in the day, and so sitting down and listening, to, doing some painting maybe, and listening to a podcast is a luxury to them. And so the reason they support me is not because they want to see me crank out 10 podcasts a month. Mm. It's because, bless their hearts, for whatever reason, you know, and I might think some of them are deluded, they think I've got an important contribution to make to the hobby. Do you feel, do you feel a pressure? Do you feel a pressure having Patreons? It's something, I, it's something I've not done. Um, yeah. there, are there are complications with my job about... Mm having second incomes etc yes yes um so it's not something i've gone down um but does it uh, from somebody who doesn't do it to somebody who does do you feel a pressure to produce content and is there a danger that it could no i, I don't think you would for a million years but for mm. for other people is there a danger that then skews their content to get more of an audience um that's a really good question. Uh, do I feel pressure to, to produce content only to the degree, degree that I've just discussed? Yeah. Yeah. A kind of sense of professional obligation that these people are paying me, therefore I owe them something in return. And what I owe them is my professional skill in producing stuff. Mm. By and large, in recent times, that happens to have been podcasts. People seem more happy to consume podcasts than say lengthy blog posts um i kind of i envy people like alex southern you know yeah or or troy who does sonic sledgehammers mm. you know his painting videos and stuff i think that i kind of wish i had the the time and the wherewithal to do more stuff on video uh, because YouTube is an exciting place to be and it's a really growing place to be. But second to video, audio is also where it's at. But I have to be realistic and say my setup here isn't, I've got too much crap on the war games table too much of the time. And the thought of having to clear it to do another video uh, would be stressful for me. You know, I'll do occasional videos, which I have done. And, uh, but I had, you know, I got a huge admiration for Troy 
and for Alex for what they do. And their setup is perfect for what they do. For me, audio is more manageable. But also I know from the few videos I have done, man, if I think it's hard work editing a podcast, editing video. Yeah, I, I kind of estimate that, okay, if I record an hour's worth of podcast, I will probably spend two hours editing it. If it's a video, double that. Yeah. Right. At least because there's so many more visual elements to take into account and the soundtrack. And do you have subtitles and label things and text? And uh, wow, it's just, it's a lot of work. The, the, I love doing a video because I think there's something about having that video as the end product is hugely satisfying. Mm. And then when you get feedback about it through people on YouTube and stuff, it's amazing. But in terms of that sense of pressure, uh, if there's a pressure, I've what I've learned is most of it's coming from me. My, you know, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm incredibly lucky. There are very, as I say, very few patrons who have, gone off in a huff and said, oh, I haven't had as much from Henry as I thought I was going to get. And that's fair enough. If, if their expectation was that there would be a great deal more, mm, sorry. But what patron them allowed to do is come in for a bit, suck it and see, and then go, oh, no, I'm going to go over to this bloke who maybe doesn't have my life obligations, who is able to produce two videos a week or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, I can't do that. I'm a quantity over quality kind of guy. And I will never allow myself to feel pressured into producing more stuff more quickly of a lower quality just to get the numbers up. Mm. I will. I'm not interested. Yeah. Just not interested. And have you been have you been approached by people who are maybe trying to push something of their own? to get onto your podcast. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and how do you feel about that? Uh, terribly sorry. I don't do that kind of podcast. Um, and I think that's the, that's the attitude I take as I take as well. Yeah. Um, you have to set boundaries. You yeah. know, I've learned a lot about boundaries in the last couple of years, my God. And one of those boundaries is, you know, nothing against you. Hope your thing, whatever it is, goes well. Good luck to it. I mean, a good example, Andy Callan, who I mm. interviewed just yesterday. Obviously, Dan WI sent me a copy of Nevermind the Bill, Bill Hooks. Yeah. Uh, great. Lovely. But I'm not going to sit there and just do a review of Nevermind the Bill Hooks. I'm not going to spend an hour and a half just talking about Nevermind the Bill Hooks. I'm going to interview Andy Callan as Andy Callan. And we talked a great deal about his back, he's been writing articles for magazines since yeah. the 1980s. Amazing bloke. Fascinating bloke. We spent some time towards the end of the show. Oh, yeah. And you've got this thing out that's just come out now. Never mind. the. Tell us a bit about that. But yeah. I'm not going to spend a whole show just bigging up. Never mind the bill hooks. Sort that, frankly. I'm, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not being paid to do that. And that's not what my listeners want. You know, yes, and this is one of those interesting things. I'm on that cusp, a bit like Battle Games was. Being a, running a patron gig, it is a commercial enterprise. It is mm. a business, but I am not going to act as a commercial for anyone. See the difference, yeah. right? Uh, that, that's lovely to hear because um, 
it's it's a it's a delicate line, isn't it, where an interview yeah. becomes an advertorial. Yes. And um you've got to try and I think if you set in your own mind that boundary before you do it and explain that to the person that you're going to speak to. Yeah. You've got the boundary. Um, and you know, when, when people come on my, my show, you do the first three sections and then we have the big topic. And if the big topic is something like a book or whatever, great. But we're going to, we're going to do the three sections that you're going to do the bloody quiz, whether you like it or not. (laughs) Yeah. And this is the thing, even, even with someone like Mark Urban, bless his heart. This is why I send out show notes. Mm. because then people can see in black and white, oh, the majority of the show is going to be about this, this, this. Oh, right. And then, yeah, of course, we'll talk a bit about your latest. Mm. Like, And I'm, I was keen to talk about Red Devils with Mark because it's a brilliant book, fascinating, revealing some stuff that I didn't know and therefore I bet my listeners didn't know. Mm. And, of course, he's been kind enough to give his time to come on the show. Of course, I'm going to give him a chance to talk about his thing. But it's a bit like, you know, if you're Graham Norton or something on the telly. Yes, of course you're coming on to plug your latest album, your latest book. But I want the chart, the majority of the conversation to be banter mm. about what it's like to be you yes. in this context. You know, yeah. what it's like for my, in Mark's case, what it's like to be a BBC correspondent. Wow. Mm. Going to these places. How does, you know, all that stuff alan and michael perry what's it been like being twin brothers creating all this stuff that we love you know yeah and so my boundary is of course you're going to get to talk about your latest stick but mm. in return you're gonna you know i'm giving you the airtime to do that and in return you're going to be bloody interesting on my show <laughs> And if I and and I if I get to see your thing before the show and I think your thing is shit, I'm sorry the show's cancelled or yeah. the or you know or the show format's going to change because I will not endorse anything that I think is crap ever. That's that's a, a wonderful a wonderful uh, and you can imagine on this podcast that I've got trouble in the past. <laughs> <for saying. laughs> Same thing, and and the the least we say about Bill Hooks, the better, um, because my review, um, my an eight out of ten review, um, Andy Blessing was absolutely fine about it, but yeah. um, it didn't go down well in the Bill Hooks community, unfortunately. Really? Yeah, because I hadn't played the game, so I said at the start, oh. I'm reviewing the book. This is and yeah. flick through so you can see what you're going to get. Yeah. Oh, some people didn't like it. Oh dear, like dear, 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 dear. Oh, well, people, this is the modern thing, isn't it? People are allowed to be offended. Oh, right? yes. Uh, uh, and, you know, it, it's one of those modern things where you could say anything you like and someone somewhere will deliberately take offense at it. And you know what? Yes, mate, you're, you're allowed to be offended. You go ahead and be offended. Doesn't change my opinion in the mm. slightest. I've had, I've had people offended with my pronunciation. Um, I had one guy who complained that the Yorkshire Gamer podcast was too Yorkshire. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And the best, the best one, the best one, the best one. Yeah. My fictitious what if scenario was not historically accurate. <laughs> Okay, that one that one wins a bit. Does that win? Does that win? Does that, that has that got the award? Fantastic. 
I'll yeah. tell you what. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Henry. I'm going to. I'm going to draw a line there because I think um, it's a nice boundary to talk about the podcasts. And then, if you're willing, at some stage, come back and talk about that article with me because there's there's, right. there's so much stuff on there that that's I think is really important to right. what we do. Um, okay. As uh, and I don't want to rush it. Okay. And I don't. I, 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 honestly, I honestly Henry, I don't think you can rush it. That's right. I think what we it would be fair to say because that's an awful tease. Yeah. Um, obviously, stuff that I included in what I wrote, and it's stuff I've talked about openly and publicly before. Mm. You know, but just some people hadn't seen it. I talked about my experience having prostate cancer. I talked about my experience having a mental breakdown. I yeah. talked about my experience recovering from both those things mm. and uh I, I, from my perspective i'm more than happy to talk about that stuff i think you're probably right it's probably about time that you know we said cool me. need some dinner um but i i will just say before we go that i am unrepentant in believing uh that we must talk about these things that so many men in particular find very embarrassing yeah because i was incredibly lucky that a chance test for diabetes actually mm. led to me discovering that i had very aggressive prostate cancer that could have killed me mm. and that therefore that made me realize wow, I hardly knew anything about prostate cancer. Why? Because no one talks about it. And that's a terrible thing. If me talking about prostate cancer can save one life, it's worth me talking about it. Also, then when it came to like the, the psychological toll of having cancer mm. and the drugs they put me on for cancer and the, you know, what led to in January 21, you know, I can only describe it as a mental breakdown. I thought about killing myself. And the journey I've been on recovering from that, which includes therapy, which I'm not remotely embarrassed about talking about because, again, saved my life. Learning about how the our minds work, getting proper therapy, saved my life. And again, wow, if it helped me, I bet this will help someone else as well. Mm. And all I can the the response I've had to what I've said publicly about both those things has confirmed my belief that I've done the right thing in speaking out about mm. those things. I'm summarizing massively yeah. here. I, I think I think it's important that that we that if you're willing that we talk about this uh, a sure. much more length because um, you know my job dealing with death. Um, yeah. every single day um, yeah. of, of my life um, has affected my mental health in many ways. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, um, three or four weeks ago, a friend of mine um, decided to kill themselves because they'd, oh. they'd had enough. Um, oh, and um, it is important, as you say, to talk about these things. And, and if, uh, if two old guys who are war gamers uh, talk about this sort of stuff yeah. and it gets through to even 10% of my audience, then I, yep. I will be proud of the fact that I've done it. So yep. I would be grateful if you would come back on in the future. Henry, of course. And talk about of that. course. Absolutely. Without question. Yep.
Brilliant. Yep. Well, th- thank you very much, so much for taking your entire afternoon up talking to me. <laughs> um, and uh, it's been a pleasure as always. I, I really genuinely enjoy talking to you all when, when we you meet too, up, Henry. It's, uh, it's been brilliant. So um, we, will, we will call this uh, half time and we will be back sometime in the future. We'd just like Fantastic. to say goodnight to everyone, Henry. Yeah, uh, thanks everyone, seriously, for putting up with me for the last four hours or whatever it's been. And Ken, mate, seriously, it's really nice when you kind of, you know, you kind of click with someone uh, in any context in life, you know, in our hobby, in real life in general. I think that's the thing that, you know, I think that even though you live in the wild north of Yorkshire uh, and I'm down in the balmy south, or is it just balmy south? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's really nice to have got to know you better. And I'm sure that this is, you know, a re- relationship in and out of war game that is going to continue hopefully for many years to come, mate. So thanks for so much for having me on the show. Lovely words, Henry. Thank you very much. Uh, good night, everyone. There you have it, a lovely chat with Henry Hyde. And uh, I'm having a little giggle because some people are going to look at this and go, a podcast with Henry under two hours, it's only one hour and 48. Little do they realise that this is part two (laughs) of the podcast. And, you know, you don't want people coming on your podcast and not talking. So um, Henry is always a joy to have on board and i think we covered a lot of topics there that that maybe we he hasn't gone through before and uh, we certainly had a really really good laugh i'd very much enjoy talking to henry uh, and i hope that shone through in these two episodes that you've been listening to over recent weeks and it's not over yet oh my jove it is the 16th of december so we are not far off christmas at all less than 10 days uh, but i have another episode fingers crossed that uh, will be coming out uh, next friday and uh, or maybe next thursday let's see how it goes uh, and that is the bruise of the binyard christmas special with alex and sean that i mentioned at the start of this episode and um we had a few technical difficulties um, with uh, Sean's recordings and some bits are missing from them. So um, it's just proven a little bit tricky at the moment putting it together as a show. But I will rescue something from it because there's too many good bits in it not to. Um, so enjoy this episode. Uh, try and get it listened to this week because there will be another one uh, on Friday. And then the Yorkshire Gamer Awards will be released between Christmas and the New Year. The Golden Puddings, as they are known. And uh, as you can imagine from my previous content for the last two years, it is deadly serious and, um, you know, all very hush-hush, all very, you know, envelopes being opened in secret, that sort of thing. Yeah, of course it is. Uh, so, until next time. See you.